Here's Bob and Suzanne. Chicken joke. And Mrs. Cleaver. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller plays. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We're on a mission from God. Technology. You had me at hello. I know Nanu, nanu. Baby, you're the great. I'm not going to be ignored. Here comes the judge. Go ahead. Make my day. I got nowhere else to go. More cowbell. That fashion. There's anything wrong with that. You can't handle the truth. I'm not an actor. I'm a movie star. That's the story of my life. No respect. I don't get no respect at all. I'm the dude. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And now for something completely different. There's no business like show business like no business. Hi, welcome to Where Hollywood Hides. This is podcast episode number 46. My name is Bob McCullough. And my name is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Bob. Pretty excited about today. Before we get to that, I wanted to ask you a very important question. What are you going to be for Halloween? What am I going to be for Halloween? Where do you yes. come up with this well, stuff? Well, our granddaughters oh asked me this God. morning. Oh, my God. Do I have to be something? Our granddaughters asked me this morning if I was going to give candy out. Uh-huh. And I said, yes. And they asked me what I was going to be. And I said, I don't know. One of them said, <laughs> I should be a witch. <laughs> so Perfect. do you think they're trying to give me a hint? Yes. Maybe they think that would be typecasting. Maybe I should ask you what you think. Uh, I, I think you should be Sleeping Beauty. Oh, Good answer. Yeah. Good answer. Hey, listen, today's interview is really unique in that we are interviewing one of probably one of the most powerful people in the movie business over the last uh, 25, 30 years. A fascinating career to have. Today's guest is David Anson. He was the uh, chief film reviewer and uh, editorial director at Newsweek magazine. Uh, throughout this, from, well, from 77 to 2008. He was a senior editor there. Uh, prior to that, he was the chief critic at Boston's The Real People. And he's been on the selection committee of the New York Film Festival. He's written several documentaries that have been on television. Uh, wrote the life story of Greta Garbo, the story of Groucho Marx, Elizabeth Taylor. And he won an ACE Award for his writing on the Betty Davis documentary. He's been a juror at Sundance. He's a member of the New York Film Critics Circle, the National Society of Film Critics, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and he's a three-time winner of the Page One Award from the Newspaper Guild of New York. David Anson is a unique and brilliant guy. You know how I love to read all sorts of kinds of things about Hollywood? I found something very funny. The psychology of the Hollywood beard. Uh Uh-oh. Now, you have a beard. There are nine beards here, They're and <laughs> not one is like yours. Oh, see? So I'm number 10. So I don't know what that says. Okay. Anyway, it, I found this hysterical. There's the retirement beard, which uh, David Letterman has right now. Okay. It's a real bushy Just beard. scruffy, yes. yeah. The rehab beard. Uh, <laughs> John Hamm has that right really now. Really? Three weeks at Betty Ford, that's the beard you get? The depression beard. O'Brien has that. Conan O'Brien, okay. And the director beard, the hiatus beard, the breakup beard, the lucky beard, the viral marketing beard. Anyway, it was... And my beard's not there? Come on. The beard is not there. The still working beard. The beard is so in now that 
some people, I, I guess some men, you would know this. Well, you would know it because you have a great beard. But I guess some men, when they grow their beards, it's kind of patchy. Yeah. So now they are doing implants. You're making this up, No, right? it says here, in true Hollywood fashion, if a man can't grow it naturally, cosmetic surgery can help. Oh, my God. Beard transplants, usually done with hair taken from the back of their head, it runs between ten and $15,000. You have a fortune on your face. <laughs> They're putting hair on your face? Right. Only Hollywood can come up with this stuff. Unbelievable. So I guess you, so you should be, you beard. should be more appreciative of my beard. I should. I Maybe should. I'll just let it grow even longer. Maybe I'll what do you just think? stroke it more. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well, listen, today's interview is going to be a lot of fun. So here's David. Hey, Bob. How are you? It's been a while. My wife Susanna's with us. Hi, David. It's a pleasure. Good. Hi. David, at first, I, I want to I want to thank you for doing this. I know you've got a lot on your plate right now. Uh, shifting re- shifting responsibilities, moving from one festival to another. How does a guy who went to high school with me wind up becoming an internationally known film critic? I mean, it's not like you said, I want to be an actor, and you went out into that world. You kind of stood above it all. So we kind of want to go way back, if you don't mind, for a second. Okay. Tell I'm us willing a- to go way back. Tell us about your childhood a little bit, what your parents were like, uh, where you were raised, were your parents in in the movie business at all? Yes, as a matter of fact. My father, uh, as I was growing up, worked uh, at MGM back in the days when the studios produced two-reeler shorts that, that ran with their features. They were called the Pete Smith Specials. They wow. were these uh, comic, comic two-reelers that were very popular, ones, uh, even won some Oscars. They're on TMC now, aren't they? They pop up on uh, TCM. TCM, yeah. Uh, yeah. As filler every every now and then. So did you uh, actually say your father won an Oscar? The shorts, the producer of the shorts won, uh, won an Oscar. Wow, that's a big deal. Um, and, you know, one of the other writers was Harry uh, Park Your Carcass Einstein, who <laughs> was the father of Albert Brooks. Oh, boy. His real name is Albert Einstein, right. who also went to high school with us, I think, a few years behind us. Then he went on and he did, he wrote a, few, a couple of, co-wrote a couple of feature films. He worked for Columbia in the 60s when the studios made their own in-house trailers. That's now all farmed out to, to independent companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he would do the preview of the coming attractions for movies like In Cold Blood, for example. So, yes, I was kind of to the movie manner born. So you were around it uh, a lot. You know, I, I never really planned on becoming a film critic. It wasn't something, you know, I, I said... This is the goal of my life. Um, but when I was 12 years old, I started keeping a list of every movie that I saw. And I would write down the title of the movie and who was in it, and I gave it a rating. Really? Wow. So there um, you go. You had the instinct. <laughs> so, you know, the die was cast. And then a couple of years later, I discovered there was such a thing as a director, and I added, started adding the name of the director. And I've kept this list up my entire life. It's like a you know a diary of my life. I can look back at it and see the title and remember so you, where so I you, thought. So you've managed to channel your OCD a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's true. So at a very early age, you loved seeing films and commenting on them mm-hmm. in one way or the other, just writing it down. Yeah. That's that's very yeah. fascinating at such an early age. <laughs> I mean, interestingly... Many years later, when I actually started professionally becoming a critic, I stopped giving it a rating. 
<laughs> I left that part blank. So, but, you know, there's over 10,000 movies on that list. Wow. So in, in high school, were you, you were a very high academic achiever, as I recall. Well, uh, well you went, pretty you, well. You went to Harvard. Certain, you know, as, long as, as long as I wasn't taking chemistry. Uh, <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> right. It was a complete disaster of chemistry. <laughs> you can't be good at everything, David. The, the class that I think I probably was the most valuable that I took in high school was typing. <laughs> so you uh, you wound up going to Harvard. Did you mm-hmm. did you major in film? There were no majors in film at that time. Right. You couldn't you couldn't major in film. Well, I always knew that I wanted to write. You know, I started writing stories in grammar school, mm-hmm. uh, short stories. And, um, when I by the time I got to Harvard, my ambition actually was to be a playwright. I was writing. I wrote a bunch of plays in high school. And I put on one of my one-act plays in my freshman year at Harvard. And uh, theater was kind of my interest. And then theater got a lot less interesting and movies got a lot more interesting. You know, starting in high school, I remember seeing all those French New Wave movies started to come out like the 400 Blows. Right. And Hiroshima Monomore. I had very you know, serious tastes in movies in high school and saw a tremendous number of the foreign films. It was kind of the, the glory days of foreign films right? Uh, and English movies and, as well as the Hollywood stuff. Were you aware in but, college of the what I think was kind of the sea change in American cinema in the 60s, uh, the rise of the anti-hero and uh, a kind of a different way of telling stories? Yeah, although I think in the, you know, in the American cinema that didn't, that really didn't happen until the 70s, that big radical shift, mm-hmm. somewhat influenced by European cinema. But yes, yes, absolutely. Were your parents supportive of your ambition in writing? Oh, yeah, they were, actually. My, my father was, uh, he was kind of, he was my first critic, really. And he was, I actually found it very, very valuable. He was not one of these fathers who, you know, when he wrote something, everything he wrote was like genius. He would, you know, point out where it could be better and, you know, what I could, you know, fix this, fix that. He was a bit of a tough critic, but encouraging. And uh, obviously helpful. So I learned, I learned to take criticism at an early age very well. <laughs> so let me ask you this question. I, I know you wrote a very insightful article uh, recently in Elevate where you discuss your newfound interest in television. Why at mm-hmm. that time, when most of us of the same age we're literally glued to the tube, you know, mm-hmm. every waking hour. You obviously were not. Tell us yeah, why, why Why do you think that happened? And what do you see over that long period of time, the difference mm-hmm. between what makes a movie and what makes a TV show, in your opinion? Because they're wow. vastly different. They are vastly different. But television has, a, you know, has changed so much in the, in the last few decades. You know, when we were when we were growing up, it was just network television, and you know, I mean, and I, you know, like many people, I when I was a kid, I loved you know, have gun, will travel, and Gunsmoke, and I love those and Bullwinkle, and you know, I I liked television, but it wasn't you know, it there was there was something it it, it didn't satisfy me the way that movies did. I remember that total immersion because the quality of, of of it wasn't the same. Although I do remember. Watching, you know, this was back in the in the days of sort of live television dramas, Playhouse ninety. Do you remember that? Sure, uh, sure. And you know, a lot of actually terrific film directors were working in that medium. Came out with John Frankenheimer. There's a lot of those Playhouse nineties 
which I was aware of, and then he became, you know, he directed The Manchurian Candidate. Which right, and a lot of major acting talent came out of that period as well. Absolutely, yeah. But, you know, there, there were long stretches of my life when I absolutely watched no television at all. In college, you, you didn't have a TV in your room, and somehow I didn't miss it. But I was going to the movies religiously, so I'm... I'm kind of an illiterate about about certain years of television when everybody was watching these famous shows. I, I, did, I didn't see them at all. So what was your very first job as a critic, whether it's a paid gig or not? And how, and how did you get there? I mean, you don't walk in the door and say, hi, I'm your next film critic. No, my first job as a movie critic, I did, so I did some theater criticism in college. But anyway, I started my career in, in Boston at a little paper called The Real Paper, which was a sort of countercultural weekly. I started as a freelancer. I, I, I got to be friends with the guy who was the movie critic there, and he let me do a couple of little freelance pieces that I think, you know, I was paid $15 for. Then a, then a second critic had the job, and then when he left, the position was open to be the, the editor of the, of the film section and the main critic, which I applied for. And at that point in my life, I desperately needed a job. I was... <laughs> Pretty much broke, and and, and, th- and those jobs don't pay very well, do they? I mean, when... no, but in but but in those days, we're talking about the in 1975 and four. You really you you really didn't need much money at all, but they couldn't make up their minds. The, the editor, the paper wanted to hire a name, and I certainly wasn't a name. But I ended up getting the job. It sort of took off from there. Two years later, I was hired by Newsweek. So you were really kind but, of walking a career uh, high wire, if if you will. When our pe- I was. I mean, our our peers at that time were out of college uh, seven eight years. They are beginning to practice law, uh, perform surgery, and command military troops. For example, right. they're they're, they're, right. Bec- they're becoming uh, uh, leaders of society and commerce, and mm-hmm. and you have taken a truly artistic turn. Yeah, I mean, I went off and literally like lived in the wilderness for a couple of years when in my commune days, and you know, ended up back east, really not knowing what I was going to do. You mm-hmm. know, I, I survived for a couple of years writing cover copy for paperback books. So I knew some publishing people in New York, and I would write the blurbs on the front and back cover of, of paperback novels. And, did you have to? Did you, did you have to read them to do that? My God. Sometimes, hilariously enough, the books weren't available or weren't even written yet. Uh, the funniest thing I ever did in that job, I wrote a lot of copy for women's gothic novels. And in one case, it's, it's traditional that on the, on, the, on the page one you write a, you, you, you select a little scene from the book. Right tantalizing scenes. It was nothing like what my father did making trailers. And this book hadn't even been written. There was just an outline. And I actually made up a scene from the movie, from the, from the book Perfect. and wrote it as if it were a quote from the book. How they uh, found that acceptable, I don't know. What an imagination. <laughs> Welcome to that version of show business. Wow. Yeah, really. So you're manage- managing to survive as a writer. And I managed to survive, and then when I land this job, even though it didn't pay terribly well, it seemed like a lot of money to me at the time, having been, you know, down to my last ten dollars. I was either going to become a movie critic or, you know, maybe drive a cab. Um, fortunately, I got the job. And it was a very interesting period because there were two papers in Boston at the time: the Real Paper and the Boston Phoenix. 
and they were almost like the I would say the farm clubs for the majors, in that almost every movie critic of my generation who ended up in New York at big publications came out of those two papers. Janet Maslin had been the critic at the Boston Phoenix, uh-huh. and she actually was the critic at Newsweek before me. She was there not long, maybe for a year or so, before she was moved over to the New York Times. When that position came up and I applied for the Newsweek job, figuring, you know, it was a, it was a long shot, but uh, why not? Yeah, I mean, Newsweek's and, a huge step up. A huge step up, but they like my work, and I, I, I later found out I didn't even know it at the time that one of the people who had recommended me was Pauline Kale. Recommend, recommendations so, don't cut much higher than that. Very flattered by that one. She called me one day after, you know, she she was famous for following young critics, and um, just out of the blue, she called me up at the at the real paper to compliment me on a piece I'd written, and uh, you know, we arranged a a meeting. I was out in Western Massachusetts. She's had a house in Great Barrington, and she invited me to come out and say hi. So that, was, that must have been exciting because she, she was very much a celebrity in her own right. I mean, she was a huge celebrity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that was the era of celebrity movie critics. Right, I mean, a, a real power broker, uh, right up yeah. there. How, how would you compa- uh, compare Pauline Kael to Rex Reed? Rex Reed had no influence over. He was a he was an influential critic, but he had no influence over other uh, over criticism, uh-huh. over other critics. You know, Pauline had a whole school right. of people called the Paulettes who <laughs> kind of aped, aped all her opinions and her style. I was not a Paulette, uh-huh. although I was a great fan of hers. Um, but there, there was the days of great movie critic feuds, and the and the big battle was between Pauline Kael and Andrew Saris, who was. You know, the dean of the tour critics. That's right. And they would write scathing pieces about each other. (laughs) And they truly detested each other personally. The the Um, movies became ancillary to their feud, right? Yeah, really. You know, I mean, the irony was that she, in her own way, became as big an auteurist as him, but with a different canon. Um, But, um, you know, in those days, you know, movies were right at the sort of hot, center of culture in a way that they're not now. And movie criticism was, you know, people really followed critics and great battles ensued. And uh, Now, now for, for our listeners uh, who are probably not really aware of the uh, nature and intent of criticism, can you give us an idea, even back then in your early writing, mm-hmm. what were the elements that go into a critical piece? I mean, you're not just writing your opinion about things. You're analyzing both the... You're, cult- no, you're, you're bringing a lot of things. You're bringing your whole knowledge, of course, the background of film and the genre and of society. You're writing about the world. You're writing about the film. You're writing about ways of, of, of looking at the world. Uh, you try to bring everything to bear on, on, on a piece. Uh, and in those days, the real paper had a lot of space to do that. I mean, everybody has an opinion. That's the easy part. But it's you know, to... and you also discover, you know, in the process of writing how you feel, you know, you, you know, I always say, you know, I do, I do my best thinking when I'm writing, you know, you discover things you you may not even have realized. Sure. sure. Are, are you influenced at all by the actors in the movie or do you basically just look at the whole piece in terms of you liking them or not personally? I mean, 
Mm. Because I know well, everybody is, has their favorites. That's true. That's true. You do have your favorites. And there are some people that kind of rub you the wrong way. You know, as you, as you get older and you've been around, you, you learn things about these people that you try not to bring into your thinking when you... That must uh, be so hard. Yeah, I mean, actors are, are a vital component of, of a movie, and sometimes a movie can be severely damaged if the wrong actor is in the wrong role. But sure, you have you have favorites, and there's certain people that, you know, you want to see in anything that they, that they do. I always used to say that you kind of, you're watching a movie with two eyes, you know, a part of you has to watch the movie like an ordinary film goer and you laugh and you cry and you react and the other the other side of your brain is kind of analyzing why you're reacting the way you are if the emotion is genuine and earned or cheap and manipulative so you're sort of it's it's a delicate balance you can't lose sight of that basic gut instinct you know right. then you're I think kind of worthless as a critic if you can't do you, do you have you mm-hmm. ever found yourself so caught up in a film that you've had to see it again with the critical eye? Once in a while, you get very, you know, I mean, I, I often get caught up in film. And sometimes you perhaps overreact to something that years later it will look a little different to you. Uh, I mean, that's another fascinating thing about how time and context changes your, your feelings about movies. Yeah, and, and there's sometimes when you're, when you're torn, you know, you're very divided. There, there was a case once of a movie that I saw and was very emotionally moved by and I think I saw it quite far in advance. In those days, the studios would sometimes show you movies, you know, months before they open. Mm-hmm. And you'd have a lot of time to think. And I went back and I saw it again before I wrote about it and had a quite different and much less positive reaction to it. It was a dilemma. Uh, like, what review do I write? Do I go with my original instinct, which was a more emotional instinct, or do I go with my second? And I... I did a sort of balancing act, but I savored the first response because that's sort of the way people are going to be seeing that movie. Right. That's right. I think you're absolutely right. Even those of us who are not critics, Bob and I have uh, been guilty of just loving or hating a movie, and we mm-hmm. oftentimes see it again, and mm-hmm. we do not like the one we love so much, and we sometimes see the value in the one that we didn't mm-hmm. like. So yeah, you're, you're yeah. right. Right. And you realize, you know, certain movies stay with you, and even you think you don't like them, but they won't leave you. Mm-hmm. It tells you something, you know, there's something going on there. And then also, you know, later when I started going to film festivals, like I would go to Cannes for eight years in a row. I, w- I had a ancillary job when I was in Newsweek on the selection committee for the New York Film Festival. And part of that job was to go to Cannes and scout for movies. And in that context, you know, you're seeing, you know, four movies a day. You're tired. You're jet lagged. You're kind of overstimulated. People are falling asleep next to you and snoring loudly. You know, and movies in that context look different. And I got to the point where I wouldn't necessarily trust my reactions to movies that I would see in Cannes and would want movies that I that didn't look so good in that context, I would see again back at home and realize, oh, they were much better than I thought they were. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Uh, From a practical standpoint, how soon after you see a film do you sit down to write? That's an interesting question these days, because one of the big changes in film criticism, which I think is unfortunate, is that because of the pressures of the Internet, most critics these days who are writing for online have no time 
to think about the movies. They have to write their reviews immediately after they see the film. Mm -hmm. But in those days, I would often have a lot of time to think about it. It would vary, of course, depending on on when the studio showed you. But writing for a weekly, you know, I usually have a couple of weeks. Um, I would not go, go right back and start writing. For one thing, I always had to wait to find out how much space I had. At Newsweek, they were very specific. I mean, I had 57 lines for this review and 120 for this and 40 for this. And there was no flexibility. I mean, that's how many lines you had. So there was no point in sitting down and writing a 200-line review if you were only going to get 75 lines. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would wait until I, until, until I knew, which was always the, the week of. But some, you know, sometimes you'd have to write really fast. When you were at Newsweek, uh, was the choice of films yours? To a large extent, uh, it was. When I first got there, well, there were two of us who sort of divided, Jack Cole and I, divided the film reviewing duties. And he was senior, and there were, there were certain directors that he wanted to write about. Then as things changed, I sort of became the senior guy. And uh, there were movies that you obviously had to write about because they were, you know, if a Star Wars came along, mm -hmm. you weren't going to ignore it. I mean, I have an interesting story about that, too. I actually wrote a cover story, you know, in the, in the 90s when, when, they, when they revived the series. My review was the first review published of it. And this was the most eagerly anticipated movie in, in, in decades, right? right? And I saw it on a Friday night at 10 o'clock at night. Oh my. We had a meeting at, at Newsweek, and they decided they wanted to do a cover story on it. And the, the magazine came out on Monday, right? So I had to start writing at about midnight. <laughs> a cover story is a long piece. Right, you know, yeah, it's to, not 75 lines, right. I had to pull an all-nighter. All and my review came out, and it was quite negative. And the hate mail oh, that sure. I got, you know, it's a kill the messenger. You can't possibly be right. I mean, history has indicated me but at the time i was like the most reviled critic in the nation uh, <laughs> did ma did newsweek management have any sway over that in other words did they want to edit you did they say whoa slow it down a little bit don't be so harsh it's on the cover for god's sakes we're going to be selling ads. no to their to their great credit newsweek was very good about this they did not interfere they, they never told me like you got to give this a good review or, you know, don't mm -hmm. be so harsh. Interestingly enough, there were several movies on the cover that I wrote negative reviews of. For example, Pearl Harbor. Newsweek liked to tie in movies to historical events. So they wanted to do a big Pearl Harbor anniversary piece with a lot of pieces that weren't really movie related, but the movie image was on the cover and my review was sort of a sidebar. And I wrote a very negative review of it. Uh, even though it was on the cover, a pretty terrible movie. Well, well, uh, you guys are coming from different perspectives. They want to sell magazines, and you want to, yeah. and you want to share your wisdom, basically. Right. Yeah. But to you know, to Newsweek's credit, they never put pressure on me to change, you know, my opinion, uh, which I can't say is true of some other magazines. Let so. me ask you this question: As a film critic, at some point in time, your profile began to really rise, and your impact on the industry certainly began to be felt. When you write an, a review of Star Wars number 12 or whatever it was, I'm sure, for example, Suzanne and I did not see that because we may have read your review. What? How, where do you see your role or, quote, do you, do you have a responsibility to the industry? I mean, you can kill a movie. 
You, mm-hmm. I mean, Star Wars was a couple hundred million dollar deal with with Prince and Avatar. Well, that was an unkillable movie, you know. <laughs> <Absolutely>. That's <laughs> as much it as you try. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of movies that I, you know, I panned some huge successes. And they were critic-proof, and I was very aware of that, uh, which was actually sort of liberating, because I knew I couldn't really do any damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I could warn off people who, you know, wouldn't want to go, but the, but the great masses, uh, there's no way a bad review was going to deter them. But I, what I would do, it's with a smaller movie, with a, if, if there was a little independent movie or a foreign film that I really didn't like, I would often not review it. Because mm-hmm. there you can really kill a movie, and there you can really help a movie. You have much more power over the smaller film. So, uh, so David, when you received your hate mail, <laughs> that obviously was um, something memorable for you. Mm-hmm. The next review you wrote, did you have any hesitation? No, no, it didn't. You just kept going. It was very funny. There was there was a site online at the time uh, that Roger Ebert told me about. No longer exists. Back in the days of sort of online bulletin boards, yeah, sure. sure. And he told me he said, "There's a site you can, you know, put in your name, and you can see what what people are saying about you." He said, "He said, I warn you, you know, <laughs> you may not want to do this." <laughs> but of course, curiosity killed the cat, right, right. And I couldn't, I couldn't resist. And but, but however, my timing was terrible because it was right after that review came out. So the topic sentence was. David Anson is a moron. <laughs> and it went on from Perfect. there and just got worse and worse. How do, you, how do you actually select a film for review? What are your criteria? Well, there's different criteria, and it depends on who you're writing for, of course. But as I said, you know, at Newsweek, there's certain obvious movies that you, that you review. And then there's the movies that sometimes I had to fight to review movies if they were more obscure. I mean, what's... Actually, one of the most interesting things is over, I I mean, I worked at Newsweek for over 30 years, and the culture and the magazine changed a lot in those times, the whole philosophy of what you cover and why. And the change, which I think was not a good one, and it happened not just at Newsweek, but everywhere, magazines started to think like movie studios, like, well, let's put this on the cover because it'll sell. This is what people want to see. Sometimes I would come out with a 10 best list. And I would mix it up between the, you know, the movies that everybody knew about. And there might be a couple of titles there that a lot of people hadn't seen. Well, David, but, uh, we, we don't have an unlimited yeah. amount of time. I wanna, there are a couple right. of questions I really want to ask you. Oh, I have more, too. And you can, and you can answer okay. very quickly, succinctly, if you like. Have you ever walked out of a movie? I'll put it this way. In, if I was reviewing it, obviously, I, I wouldn't walk out. Uh, there were a couple, very few instances at Newsweek where I'd go to see a studio movie and I just sort of slipped out and hoped that nobody saw. I mean, of course, <laughs> I wouldn't, wouldn't write about it. But it was just like, life is too short. You know, this is like causing me pain. Where you do walk out, where everybody walks out of movies is at film festivals. For example, when, when I was in Cannes, I was wearing two hats. I was, I was writing about Cannes for Newsweek, but I was also on the selection committee of the New York Film Festival. In that capacity, if something really, after 20 or 30 minutes, is clearly not working, you know, you leave and you try to get into something else. Have you ever or do you ever take notes? Oh, yeah. Oh, you do? I, I do take notes. The, the funny thing, though, is that I rarely can read them. <laughs> <laughs> 
which has gotten worse over the years. I scribble down because <laughs> I don't want to take my eyes off the screen. Right. So I write notes, and sometimes I write, you know, three times over the same line. It's just this big wad of ink. Oh, like, what funny. the hell is that? That's funny. <laughs> Writing across your knee. Right. Funny. <laughs> if you could only see one movie, this is the, your last day on Earth. There's only one movie mm. you can only one movie you can see. What, uh, what is that movie? Oh boy, that would be a hard question well, to answer. Well, I mean, that's an interesting. I mean, the question is a little bit different from like asking me what my favorite movie is. That's right. Um, because I mean, the movie that I would usually answer, well, they, like, there's a movie that I've seen over and over, and it never ceases to give me pleasure. But since I've seen it so many times, I don't know that I would choose that well, on the day I it? die. What is it? I gotta know. What uh, is it? That's the um, the third man. Ah. With Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles, which I first sure. saw on television when I was, you know, in right. high school. Right. And fell in love with. And it just, it never, you know, it's like a perfect movie. It's just one great scene after another. Can you mm. actually go to a movie for pleasure and sit there without taking it apart? Sure. So you can just enjoy time. it. Oh, good. When, when you're no longer longer capable of doing that, you should hang up your spurs as a critic. I mean, I love movies, you know, and I go to them, you know, and I often discover the movies because I'm not, I'm not a regular critic anymore. Now, you know, I'm curating and programming, um, but I still just run out to the movies that I want to see, even though I have no intention of writing about them, hoping to enjoy them. When I ask people, when the subject always comes up, what is your favorite movie? I found that when you ask people that, chances are the answer you will get is a movie that that person saw roughly between the ages of 13 and 17. You're absolutely right, with, with me anyway. Which director mm. do you most admire? Well, that's a really hard one to answer. At different points in my life, I had different favorite directors. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think of the somewhat younger, he's not that young anymore, but you know, the, of the current guys, the one who... Are, whose films I anticipate the most is um, Paul Thomas Anderson. One. From the perspective of looking at a director's work, what do you attribute most to the success of a directorial effort? Is it, a, is it vision? Is it casting? Is it script? There's so many elements that go into directing a picture. There's so many, yes, there are so many elements. I don't know if you can narrow it down to one, but there, mean, we, we've, know, there are certain we, we've directors seen, we, who have a very specific and personal vision. I mean, if you go to see a Robert Altman movie, there's no mistaking it for anybody else's movies. Right. You know? So I just have one more question, right. Pop. Because <laughs> then I want to play a game with okay. David. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so real quickly, David, what do you think about TV these days? Because it has changed immensely. Yeah. Well, TV is obviously... You know, when you, when you... In Los Angeles, when you, know, when you go out to a party, to a dinner party, everybody's talking about their favorites. TV shows. Yep, you're right. You know, they're not talking about movies. No. Nope. Uh, it's got this vitality. I mean, as I said in that in that piece that I wrote for Elevate, you know, that movies are, you know, right now more like one night stands. But if you want a relationship, <laughs> you you know, you watch television. I almost left. I almost left my wife for Breaking Bad. <laughs> I, yes, it could happen. I mean, Breaking Bad is so addictive. Uh, it's like crack, you know. He was obsessed. He was obsessed <laughs> Can't stop with watching. And, he, you know, it allows you to be so deeply immersed in the world and in the characters because of the time, the element of time. There's so many talented writers and directors now working in television that that's really where the... And, and they're given a freedom that, that filmmakers often aren't, aren't given. So I think that 
partly explains why television is so good right now. Before we jump into uh, your festival experience and where you're going uh, next, which is fascinating, I want to play a quick little game with you. Strictly a movie mm-hmm. critic game. You, okay. there's, only, there's, only, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm going to give you two titles. Tell me which one. Boyhood or My Left Foot? Boyhood. Goodfellas or Godfather? Godfather. Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan? Schindler's List. Saving Private Ryan, the, the, the first part of Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, no explanation. I, I you're agree. not allowed to explain yourself. I agree, okay. with, I agree with that. All right, you're not allowed to explain yourself. L.A. Confidential or Traffic? Yeah, that's a tough one. Okay. L.A. Confidential by hair. Thank you. Uh, no Country for Old Men or Silence of the Lambs? I think, sort of based on my initial visceral reaction, I have to go with Silence of the Lambs. The Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty? The Hurt Locker. American Hustle or Fargo? Well, gosh. <laughs> These are tough. I like uh, to, You know what? I'm, I'm enjoying stumping the guy from Harvard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this will surprise you, but American Hustle. Okay. Um, the Fighter or The Wrestler? Ugh, I, won't even, I won't even throw Raging Bull in there. <laughs> the Fighter. Okay. And going back a little bit, A Man for All Seasons? The Lion in Winter. Not a big fan of either. All right, you're allowed to buy. Would, we'll call that your buy. Yeah, I would. I would pass on both of those. Okay, Brokeback Mountain or Milk. Brokeback. And my favorites. Last question: Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now or Deer Hunter? Mm-hmm. Wow, I could go on and on about it. Well, again, based on initial reaction. Yep. The Deer Hunter. Thank you. Okay. I mean. Apocalypse Now, you know, there's two versions of Apocalypse Now. Right, right, right. Yeah. There's two separate <laughs> movies. Well, congratulations, mm-hmm. you won the game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, do I, what do I get? Right. It'll be in the mail. <laughs> you get another question. Let me ask you this. Uh, you've been involved in so many film festivals from uh, Sundance, uh, Toronto, L.A., Telluride, uh, mm. and you're moving off to, what's your t- new title going to be in Palm Springs? You're the, um, the lead programmer. You're the head uh, cheese. You're, you're the guy everybody wants to I'm get not to. The, I'm not the head cheese there. I mean, there's a festival director who's, uh, who's above me, but, but right. I'm but one in, of the main programmers. But in terms of uh, artistic, uh, artistic. Uh, the, the arbiter of taste. You know, that's what I did at the L.A. Film Festival. I was kind of the main. Tell us a little thing. bit about, and, and I can only imagine, because we, you know, we live in Santa Barbara, and the Santa Barbara Film Festival has become a fairly big deal. It's certainly a huge deal in this town. Uh, it attracts mm-hmm. a lot of celebrities. Give me your a little bit of notion of what the politics of film festivals are like, because I have a feeling it gets pretty mm-hmm. political. Well, yeah. I mean, it, and it varies a lot from, from festival to festival. The Palm Springs Film Festival is very interesting because it's specialty. Uh, well, for one thing, it's, a, it's unlike, say, the Los Angeles Film Festival. Palm Springs is what they call a destination festival. You bet. As is, as is Sundance. Uh-huh. You know, people go there just to go to the festival, you know, right. and to go to Bob Spring. So you have a kind of built-in audience. Also, because of the timing of the festival, it happens in early January, uh-huh. and, you know, a few weeks later is Sundance. Now, what that means is Sundance especially, of course, is American independence. Palm Springs specialty is, is foreign language film, and the audience is very game. Each country, you know, 
submits one film for the Academy Awards. Right. And in Palm Springs, we curate like the best, say, 40 and, and show them. And they're very well attended. This, this is your opportunity for a shameless plug because our podcast is heard in 70 countries plus. What are the dates of the festival? The opening night is January 1st. Oh, wow. Wow. Happy New Year. Well, that'll be fun. Yeah, exactly. It's from the 1st to the 11th. And the big gala is on the 2nd, which is kind of a star-studded event. Oh, this will be exciting. That'll be a real yeah. be a holiday event. It's well, going to be fun. Listen, David, this has been fantastic talking to you. Suzanne and I may come down for that because uh, okay. we, ha- we actually have a place in Palm Springs where we can stay. And yeah. uh, I would love to see you. So let's let's stay in touch. And I can only encourage all of our listeners to take a look at David's critical history. Uh, Newsweek Online has your reviews. Very impressive. Google my name. Okay. <laughs> And, it comes and a up. lot of that stuff will come up. Yeah, And, and one piece in particular, which gives you an overview, which is actually a, a piece I wrote that kind of is structured around that list that I told you about that uh-huh. I've kept. This has been really terrific, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate your time. Thank you so much okay. for doing this. It's been a real pleasure. Thank yeah, you. It's been fun. We'll take Thank care. We'll look for you in January. I loved his interview. So our thanks again to David Anson. And I do want to remind our listeners, check us out at wherehollywoodhides.com. Take a look at our book, Where Hollywood Hides, Santa Barbara, Celebrities in Paradise. Film festival season is coming up. It's a great souvenir. Uh, It also uh, gives you a lot of background about the history of Santa Barbara and its relationship to Hollywood. So since we just interviewed one of the major movie critics of Of the generation, generation, Mm -hmm. I would like to critique a few movies that we've seen. Oh, go for it. Since I can't be a critic... In my lifetime, well, right every, now. but you know everybody's a critic. So what what movies have you seen lately that well, you really like? We've liked? seen The Walk, The Martian, and Everest, and I thought The Walk was good. Bob Zemeckis, unbelievable. First of all, the selection of such challenging material, and then to pull it off. You know, the Twin Towers are really central to the story, and a very emotional topic for all Americans. Martian, The Martian. Now you know I'm a huge fan of Matt Damon. The Bourne Identity he, on Mars. I want to be with Bourne wasn't all it, the time. But wasn't it kind of like MacGyver is on Mars? The guy can do anything with a paper clip? In my opinion, better than gravity. I think it was Matt now, that did it for me. Now, you're not a big fan of films where one of the actors breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the screen. To the audience, but Are you talking about the walk? No, I'm talking about the Martian because throughout most of the movie, Matt Damon is talking right to us practically. But but you know he's talking to NASA. Uh-huh. That's the difference. You, I didn't make that association. Interesting. As, as opposed to the walk, it was a Woody Allen moment. Yeah, he was talking to the camera. But interesting, no those else. two movies basically use the same technique, one to much greater effect than the other. And then Everest. What a tragic. True I'm not, movie. I'm not climbing mountains, and I'm not going skiing. I don't want to be cold. You know what? I couldn't get past that it was a true story, so I don't even know if I like the film. I just know I don't like the story. And interestingly, those three films you mentioned, when you walk in the theater, you know how they're going to end, but still, you're glued to your seat waiting for that end. I didn't know that Martian was going to end that way. Oh, you knew Matt Damon? Come on. They're not going to leave him on Mars. Well, I didn't know. Well, I didn't look it up for that reason. Okay, all right. The Walk, of course, you know. Uh huh. And Everest, you know. Anyway, three great films. Uh, Our hats off to uh, local Santa Barbara boy Bob Zemeckis for pulling that one off. And our great friend Dennis Sands, who was the re recording, like, what's his title? He's like the the ultimate sound mixer. 
Yes. He, he does all the music effects, the dialogue, everything. So we're very biased with the and walk. And there are some great music cues in the walk that you'd simply have to hear because the music really does drive a lot of the drama. So out of those three films, I can tell you right now, I won't be walking the tightrope. I won't be in a spaceship, and I certainly will not be climbing Everest, ever. <laughs> I, I join you in those sentiments. So, David, those are my critiques of my three films. <laughs> what do you think? Right. I think David's job is secure. Thank right. you. Right. So we want to thank all our listeners all over the world for tuning in and listening to all our podcasts. We love doing it, and we encourage everyone to please like us. Go to Facebook slash Where Hollywood Hides. Give us a like or go to iTunes and give us one of those five-star reviews. It really does help get the word out. So, this is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. And this is Bob McCullough, who's not going to shave his beard. Ha ha. We'll see you at the movies. And today's music is provided by Chance McCullough. You can find more of his original soundtracks at chancemccullough.com. Chillicothes and Paducahs with their bazookas to get their names up in lights. All armed with photos from local rotos with their hair in ribbons and legs in tights. Hooray for Hollywood. You have no way of knowing who You'll be another Papa Dion, your name and me on. If you get lucky, you could. Yes, buddy, you'll arrive if you can top his fire. Hooray for Hollywood.